125, and that's couples. That means 250 people. Um, not really ready. Not ready. Uh, 125, that's about how many wedding ceremonies I've performed over the last 30 years here in Northeast Ohio. And wedding days are such great days filled with love and hope and joy. Everybody's so optimistic that's the way things ought to be. But as I stand with these couples, I wonder, are they really ready? Are they ready for the challenges and difficulties and trials and hardships that they're surely going to face? Are they ready for unexpected job loss, ready for infertility, ready for the arrival of a child with a disability, ready to take care of parents with dementia, ready for the loss of a parent, ready to get grim news from a doctor, ready for cancer, ready for heart disease. Now, we pastors try to get couples ready in premarital counseling, but we know they're not really listening. (laughs) I mean, think about it. Even the vows are designed to help people get ready. Think about it. For better, for worse. For richer, for poor in sickness and in health, right? But couples are fixated on the dresses and the reception and the cake and the flowers. And they say the vows. They usually mean them. But I'm not sure they understand the implications. I know I didn't understand it when I said mine. So lots of couples end up ditching the marriage when worse happens or sickness comes. Because they're not really ready. And you know what? A lot of people end up ditching the Christian faith because they're not really ready. See, it's not just married couples that need to be ready. We all do all the time, our whole life long. Are you really ready, not only for the joys of life, but also for the sorrows? Last week, I um, read Kay Warren's book. Uh, title of it is Choose Joy. She writes this, I used to think that life came in waves. There was a wave of good and pleasant circumstances followed by a wave of bad and unpleasant circumstances with a lot of ebb and flow in between. Or life was a series of hills and valleys. Sometimes we're up, then we're down. But I've come to realize that life is much more like a set of parallel train tracks with joy and sorrow running inseparably throughout our days. Bingo. She's right. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, he says this, You can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing at the same time. So life is like two rails on a railroad track. And at all times, we have something to celebrate as well as something to mourn. And if we understand life that way, it's going to help us to be ready. So here's my question for you today. Are you really ready? Not only for the triumphs of life, but also for the trials. See, today we're going to trace the story of a man who could say, I am ready. Acts 21, 13, he says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I think too often we live life with an unstated assumption. God is there not to make my life totally pain-free, but he is there to protect me from the really big stuff, the big problems, the huge hurts, the major catastrophes. And you know what? He better do his job. I'm going to bail. I mean, after all, God promises our best life now, right? Well, you tell that to a follower of Christ who's buried a child. You tell that to a follower of Christ whose spouse developed Alzheimer's. You tell that to a follower of Christ who is going through debilitating chemotherapy or who has a son with autism and wonders every day what that son's life is going to be like after mom and dad die. See, this name it, claim it, prosperity gospel, it doesn't really help people get ready for real life. 
It's an expectation that we have. God's going to make everything so wonderful that will derail your life. If you try to operate your life only on the rail of victory, you're going to get off track. You're going to crash. So God wants us to be ready for whatever might be coming so we don't lose our faith and hope and love and even joy. Are you ready? Are you ready? Now, the last time I spoke at CBC, Chad gave me two whole chapters, 80 verses to teach. And I teased him about making me cover so much ground in one message. Well, today he's paying me back for teasing him because Chad's given me three chapters today, 105 verses. So wherever you are, Chad, I love you. <laughs> I think. Now, unlike last time, I'm not going to speed read all the verses. <laughs> I'm just going to tell the story, and read a few verses along the way, and then make three observations that I hope will help us to say I'm ready, like this great leader Paul did. Paul, if you met Paul face to face, you might not like him. <laughs> Warm and fuzzy, not Paul. Uh, but respect him, you bet. Paul's life was hard. He was unmarried. He worked as a manual laborer to support himself. Paul had some kind of a disability or weakness allowed by Christ to humble him. His message was unpopular. He was persecuted, beaten, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, deprived. Yet he pushed tirelessly through all of this to reach unreached people, to share the good news about Jesus, and to plant churches where injustice would be challenged and unconditional love for everybody would prevail. Now, there was a document that appeared around the middle of the second century that described Paul. And here's what it said about him. Small in size, bald-headed, praise God, uh, bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows that met, rather long-nosed, and I'm glad they threw this in, and full of grace. <laughs> now, in Acts 21 to 23, our text for today, you might want to turn there. You can follow along with the story. Where do we find this little man, Paul? Well, it's dark. Horses snort and stomp, 70 of them. And 200 foot soldiers are there armed with spears. And they've been told, be on the alert, be ready to defend against attack. And the soldiers are complaining. Why are we not in bed? Where are we going? What's so important that we need the cavalry? Why are we leaving in such a hurry with such stealth at night? And where are we going? From Jerusalem to Caesarea, that's like 60 miles. And who is this Jewish guy with us? And at the heart of this almost 300-person security guard is that small, ball-headed, bow-legged, long-nosed, graceful Jewish prisoner, Paul. He's at the center of this storm on horseback at night, surrounded by those 70 horsemen and 200 soldiers. What possibly could have happened so that this Jewish follower of Jesus need a life-protecting escort? I mean, after all, he's just like a traveling missionary who can't quit talking about a dead Jew that, he says, came back to life. Well, you got to rewind to like three weeks before. Now, in those days, famine and, and hunger and deprivation had hit Jerusalem and Judea hard. And for years, Paul encouraged the churches that he planted in Europe and in Asia Minor to sacrifice and to give generously to support those fellow followers of Jesus in Jerusalem who had great need because of the great famine. And Paul wanted to travel to Jerusalem to bring these disaster relief offerings from the Gentile believers to their Jewish brothers and sisters. So with his offering in hand, Paul is heading toward Jerusalem. And on the way, he visited uh, believers in various cities. In a town called Tyre, Paul was warned that it was dangerous for him to go to Jerusalem. Uh, but Paul felt he was following God's will. 
And like Jesus before him, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from Tyre, Paul and his traveling party came to Caesarea. And a prophet named Agabus grabbed Paul's belt, and he tied up his own hands and his own feet. And here's what he says, Acts 21, 11. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So now everybody's begging Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, please don't go. And look, Paul says, stop your crying, you're tearing my heart out, I'm ready. I'm ready to be captured and tied up, and I'm even ready to die in Jerusalem for Jesus' sake. Now why? Well, Paul wanted to personally prove to the Jewish people that these Gentile followers of Jesus and these churches that he had planted had big hearts for the Jewish people who had been hurt by the famine. So he knew it's God's will for me to personally deliver this disaster relief gift. And he says, I'm ready to obey the Lord, even if it causes personal pain and suffering. Not my will, but yours be done. So Paul and his party traveled the 60 miles up from Caesarea to the coast to the city of Jerusalem. And no doubt he lays his financial gift there at the feet of the leaders of the church. And he tells James and other leaders of the church the story about reaching these unreached people groups in Turkey and in Greece and on Cyprus, how they're coming to faith in Christ. Everybody's in awe and they're praising God, they're rejoicing. But the leaders of the church know that Paul has his enemies. And some followers of Christ, so-called followers of Christ, are Jewish, and they believe, well, the reason Paul's so successful in spreading this news is because he's watering down the truth. He's watering down morality. So we want those Gentile followers to be circumcised, and they got to follow the Jewish rituals, rules, and regulations. The church had wrestled with all of this before, and the church had sided with Paul because this isn't about religion. It's not about rules, regulations, and all of that. Because you can't be right with God by trying hard and doing more. You can't be right with God just because you're a good boy or a good girl. This is about a relationship of forgiveness from Christ by grace through faith. And it's available for everybody. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles too. And so James and the leaders of the early church, they want Paul to gain credibility in the eyes of these Jewish religious legalists. And they thought, well, maybe if Paul like, demonstrates his Jewishness to these people, then the legalists are going to stop their opposition and they will join the missionary force to spread the gospel of Christ even further. So the leaders of the church said, you know, Paul, what if you publicly take part in a Jewish ritual, a, a, a purification ceremony in the temple just to prove to everybody you're an observant Jew? And Paul says, okay. Acts 21, 24, thus all will know there is nothing in what they have been told about you and that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So Paul went to the Jewish temple. Part of that ceremony was you had to shave your head. I'm thinking, well, if he's already bald, what's shaving his head going to do? Maybe shave the fringe, you know, whatever. And then he brought some sacrifices. He, a male lamb, a female lamb, a ram, and more. So Paul's all in with this Jewish ceremony. And while Paul's there in the temple, some angry Jews notice him. And they falsely accuse him of bringing a Greek man from the court of Gentiles into the court of Israel, where no Greek was allowed to come, and if he did so, he could be executed. And this angry mob began to attack Paul. How dare you bring a Greek man into the court of Israel? And so they dragged Paul from the court of Israel out to the outer court. Acts 21, 31, and as they were seeking to kill him, Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. 
this tribune is a Roman official, a Roman commander. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. Now, how did the Romans know what was going on in the temple? Well, near the outer court is this Antonia fortress where the Roman soldiers were housed. And in the event of a riot, the soldiers could intervene quickly. The two centurions rushed to the mob with the soldiers. They rescued Paul. Now, the commander of the Roman uh, soldiers tries to find out, what did this man do? Who is this man? And the shouts, uh, it was all confusion. So the commander says, well, bring him into the fortress. But the crowd still attacked to kill. And the soldiers literally had to carry Paul up the steps away from the mob and into the fortress. Now, on the way, Paul asked the Roman captain in Greek, may I say something to you? You know Greek? Aren't you that Egyptian that, it, that caused some unrest a while back? No, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus. Please let me speak to the people. And so Paul then stands there on the steps and he boldly speaks to the mob in Aramaic, which is a Hebrew dialect. The people grew silent and Paul shared his story. How he had followed all the Jewish rules and regulations. How he even persecuted followers of Jesus at first. And then how Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute more Christians. How he was forgiven, how he was changed. And how he was sent by the Lord to spread the good news about Jesus and plant churches among the unreached people. Among the Gentiles. Verse 22. Up to this word, what word? The word Gentiles. They listened to him. Then, after they heard the word Gentiles, they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Think they got a little racist problem going on here? <laughs> These people are out for blood, literally. And the Roman captain says, Well, bring him back into the fortress and scourge him, because that's going to get him to tell us the truth. And so Paul is tied to a stake. He's ready for the scourge to fall. And he asked the centurion, who's overseeing the scourging, Is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen? Are you a Roman? Yes. Well, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. Well, even though I'm a Jew, I was born a Roman citizen. And that stopped the centurion from the scourging. And the Roman military tribune trembled because he'd almost scourged somebody who was a Roman. And he said, well, tomorrow, here's what I'm going to do. I'll convene the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and we'll get to the bottom of this uproar. So the next day, the commander takes Paul to the Jewish Sanhedrin, and Paul speaks in his own defense. My brothers, I have a clear conscience before God. And at this, the high priest commanded the Jewish guards to hit Paul flush in the face. And Paul says, God will hit you, you whitewashed wall. You're going to judge me according to your law, and then you're going to hit me in violation of that very law? And they said, how dare you speak against the high priest? And Paul says, I didn't know he was the high priest. And the word of God says, don't speak evil about the rulers of your people. And then Paul stepped back and he looked around the room and he knew there were two distinct groups present. The Pharisees who believed in the resurrection and the life to come and the Sadducees who just believed that this is all there is. And Paul knew how to pit one group against the other. Look at verse 6, chapter 23. He cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now this is a genius move. The two groups began to argue with each other and forget about Paul. <laughs> the Pharisees said, we find no fault in this man. What if an angel spoke to him? And the argument became so contentious that the Roman commander was afraid Paul would be harmed again. So he escorted Paul away from the trial back to the Roman barracks in the fortress. Now when he was there that night, the Lord appeared to him and said, Be courageous, just as you have spoken well of me in Jerusalem, so you will speak well of me in Rome. Now the next day... Forty Jewish religious leaders conspire together 
to assassinate Paul. Acts 23, 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they told the leaders of the Sanhedrin, hey, ask the Roman commander to bring Paul to the council once again, and we'll kill him on the way. Now, Paul has a nephew in Jerusalem at this time. And perhaps he was there to study uh, as a young Pharisee like Paul no doubt did years before. And the nephew overheard this plot against Paul's life. He just happened to overhear it. And he told his uncle Paul about it. And Paul told the centurion, take the nephew to the Roman commander with a message. Forty radicalized men have vowed to kill my uncle Paul, your prisoner, who's a Roman citizen, if you send him back to the Sanhedrin. So the Roman commander said, I don't know what all this religious controversy is all about. Maybe I don't care. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. And that's how Paul found himself on a dark road being escorted safely as a prisoner out of Jerusalem surrounded by an armed escort of almost 300 Roman soldiers. Paul was ready. He said he was ready to die. He's ready to be misunderstood. He's ready to be almost torn in two by an angry mob in the temple. He's ready to be arrested. He's ready to be almost scourged like his savior. He's ready to be hit in the face when he's on trial. He's ready to be falsely accused. And he's ready to be transformed, transported as a prisoner while being guarded by 270 Roman soldiers. Paul was ready for whatever happened. Am I? Are you? Now, what made Paul ready? I'm going to draw your attention to three practices, three principles, three secrets that if we will embrace them, they will make us ready to. How to be ready no matter what happens? One, am I trusting the sovereignty of God? Am I trusting the sovereignty of God? I mean, Paul knew, hey, the suffering could come my way from the Jews and the Romans, but he knew they were secondary causes. He knew God's in charge of the people in charge. God is the primary mover in everybody's life. Look at verse 10, Acts 21, 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is important, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. Thus says the Holy Spirit. Paul says, okay, Lord, if this is your plan for me to be bound, I'll embrace it. And his friends will say, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. And he replies, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die. Why? Thus says the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, this is important. Let the will of the Lord be done. It's the will of the Lord that this great spiritual leader suffer? I thought God should protect somebody like that. Yes. And let the will of the Lord be done. He didn't see himself as a victim. He recognized Christ is still ruling and reigning above and beyond the Jews and the Romans. So do you believe that the troubles you're facing are governed ultimately by God for his own good and wise purposes? Maybe good and wise purposes that you're not going to get or understand. Paul is showing us he believes in the sovereignty of God. And we've kind of defined that concept for you today. Sovereignty of God. God in his infinite power and wisdom governs all things. All things. So that all his good and holy purposes are actually accomplished. Nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. Nothing. 
In a special way, God cares for his church and his people and arranges all things for his glory and for our good. You say, well, where do you get that? Psalm 115.3, our God is in heavens. He does all he pleases. Daniel 4, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 46, I am God and there is no other. I'm God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose in your life and in mine. So what difficulties do you find yourself in today? Work, school, home, health. Are you remembering God is sovereign, that he's in control? That what has happened to you, no matter how difficult, is because of thus says the Holy Spirit. It's because it's the will of God. See, when things go well, we love to give thanks to God and believe he's in control. But when things go bad, we often act like God's, the, that the devil is not God off his throne. And nothing could be further from the truth. Now, let's just make it real, okay? Are you ready for whatever might happen in this election in November? <laughs> Many of us are not ready. You say, well, how do you know? We can read Facebook posts that you put out there. Now, some of you are acting like your greatest fear is Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. And others of you are acting like your greatest fear is that Hillary Clinton could become president of the United States. Now, we got to be careful about that because, as Andy Stanley says, you're scaring the kids. And Hillary we trust? And Donald we trust? No. We are followers of Christ put our trust in the sovereign God. No matter who is president, Jesus is in control. He is Lord of all. And he is good. And he is wise. And he is strong. Am I trusting in the sovereignty of God? This matters. It's not crazy theology that doesn't matter. It really matters in how you approach your life. And am I seeing the strategy of God? Jesus always has a plan. His plan is always perfect for me, for you, and yes, even for Paul. Look at Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. And said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What a promise. The Lord makes a promise to Paul based on his plan for Paul. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to speak up and speak out for me. Now, we don't know for sure what Paul thought when he heard this promise. Maybe he thought, hey, I'm going to go to Rome as a freewheeling missionary evangelist, church planner, tent maker dude. But that's not what happened. Paul went to Rome all right, but not as a free man. He went as a prisoner. And you would think that, you know, a traveling missionary like Paul, becoming a prisoner could be the worst thing that could happen to a guy like that. Maybe the Romans who arrested him and the Jews who accused him have interrupted God's strategy somehow. But if God is in charge, he is never in heaven wringing his hands going, what am I going to do now? God's in control. And he's working out his plan to perfection. And God had an ingenious strategy to re reach the Romans. And Paul writes about this in Philippians, uh, about his imprisonment in Rome. Philippians 1.12, what has happened to me, being a prisoner in Rome, has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
Now, the imperial guard, what's that? Well, it describes Rome's uh, praetorian guard. These are 10,000 hand-picked men of Italian birth. They served a term of 12 to 16 years. They received double pay and special privileges. They were the emperor's personal army and bodyguards. So Paul is handcuffed to a member of this guard 24-7, 365 for two years. Not in a filthy dungeon. It says in Acts 28 that he was in a living space he rented for himself. And the shift changed every six hours. So each day there would be four different soldiers chained to Paul. Paul couldn't get away from the soldier, but guess what? The soldier couldn't get away from Paul. <laughs> he had a chance to share his faith with them. Probably dozens, scores, or even hundreds of them. And the guards heard him talk about Jesus with the visitors. And it's safe to say some of these guards trusted Christ. And as they took turns guarding him, they would go back to the palace headquarters, back to Caesar's household, and tell other guards about this crazy prisoner who seems so happy even though he's chained up and he's waiting for a trial. And before you know it, the entire palace guard knows all about the gospel. The entire palace knows about the gospel. And as they traveled around the empire, they took Jesus with them to places Paul would probably have never gone. And they didn't know it, but these elite Roman soldiers had enrolled in the school of Jesus with Paul as their professor. So instead of seeing the soldier on duty next to him as an obstacle to the mission, Paul saw him as an opportunity. The gospel thrives not in spite of Paul being in prison, but because Paul is in prison. That's the strategy of God. There's more. 13 of the New Testament's 27 documents are Letters from Paul to churches and leaders in the first century. And four of those letters were written while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And because of these letters that Paul was inspired by God to write, Paul's time as a prisoner truly blessed those first century churches that he loved so much. And what he was able to do as a prisoner still impacts us today as we open our Bibles and we read those prison epistles. There's a strategy of God in the midst of all of our sufferings. And maybe it's been hard for you to concentrate today. You've been through some tough stuff recently. Your spouse walked out, took the kids. Or you just heard, we're going to have to let you go at work. Or you just buried somebody you love. Or you've begged God over and over and over, but he's still not giving you a spouse or a child. And we dare not minimize the pain of any of that. But maybe God brought you here today to remind you that he has a strategy. There is a purpose for your pain that he could take our painful experiences and leverage them so that we can become a blessing to the world. No matter what happens to us, if we know Jesus, all the rotten stuff in our lives will only help us and those around us to know Christ and then to make him known. Paul knew that. That's why he was ready. Am I trusting the sovereignty of God? Am I seeing the strategy of God? And three, am I resting in the safety of God? So yes, Paul's a prisoner, but Paul made sure he stayed God made sure that Paul stayed safe. Remember that plot against him? Forty Jews took a vow to kill Paul. 2316, the son of Paul's sister, that's his nephew, heard of their ambush. and He went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul tells the centurion, takes the nephew to the commander. Verse 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him, but do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath to either eat or drink till they've killed him, and now they're ready, waiting for your consent. The commander goes, well, I'm not all about that. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Because of the Lord's sovereign plan and his strategy to use Paul to bless the world, Jesus kept Paul 
safe. Now, he didn't keep him out of prison, but he kept him safe. From being murdered two or three times by the mob, from being scourged, and kept him safe all the way to Caesarea. Paul writes about this protection in Philippians 1. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. And wait, God's allowed a disease in my life. How's that keeping me safe? Or God allowed us to have a child with a mental illness. How's that keeping us safe? God allows suffering that accomplishes his inscrutable purposes. But he will not allow any pain that could do irreparable, eternal harm. See, the Bible says in John 10, we are in a double divine grip. In the hands of the Father and in the hands of the Son. And if and when our death day comes, that doesn't mean he didn't keep us safe. No, he's protecting us all the way to glory. You know, we love to sing the song in Christ alone. And verse 4 talks about our safety in Christ no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Am I trusting the sovereignty of God? Am I seeing the strategy of God? Am I resting in the safety of God? Paul could say, yes, he was ready. Am I? Are you? See, he believed Romans 8, 28, really. <laughs> and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. Question, where does Jesus fit in all this? Listen, it's because of Jesus that we can live out these truths. It's only because of Jesus we can live out these truths. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection on our behalf, these benefits have been purchased for us and made available to us. Apart from Christ, the sovereignty and the strategy of God actually work against us. Apart from Christ, we're objects of his wrath, not his protection. But in Christ, God keeps us safe through his sovereign care and according to his strategic plan so that all of his good and wise purposes are accomplished in our lives. Because of Jesus Christ, we are adopted into God's family. We are made beloved children. And that means we have access to these unsearchable riches. What unsearchable riches? The sovereignty of God for us. The strategy of God for us. And the safety of God for us. So it's Christ who makes us ready. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, now is the time. Today is your day. Maybe today you need to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And in your program and on the screen, there's a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I've too often grumbled and complained about what has happened to me, about my life circumstances. I have not had faith, hope, love, and joy. I'm a sinner who needs your forgiveness, and I believe Christ died on the cross to forgive me. I believe he rose again. So today, I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Help me to live more and more like Jesus. If you need to enter into a relationship with Christ today, do it. Pray this prayer. There's a card and seat in front of you. You can check and say, hey, I've given my life to Christ today. Or you can check it on the program and put it in the basket when it comes around because we want to help you grow. Something as tragic as being thrown into jail or facing a marriage crisis or losing a job or dealing with failing health or the loss of a loved one can be used by God for His purposes.
I don't know where you are today. I don't know what pain might have brought you here, what crisis you're carrying, what turbulence you're facing. I don't know, but I believe that we serve a God who delights in using the very things that you think are the worst parts of your life to accomplish the best in your life. And he wants to give you faith, hope, love, and even joy. Are you ready? What if it's the pain that ushers in his purpose? What if it's the raindrops, the tears, the sleepless nights, the trials of life that you need to embrace today? Just a couple of thoughts. Are you ready for those raindrops? See, this world has fallen and troubles and storms and hardships are coming. They're coming. Guarantee it. Are you ready? Remember, life is not a series of ups and downs and downs and ups. No, it's like train tracks. The same times we know blessings and burdens, trials and triumphs. And as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we can be sorrowful all the time and rejoicing all the time. How can you do it? It's because of the truths we learned from Paul's story here in Acts, because of the sovereignty, the strategy, the safety of God. We can have faith, hope, love, and even joy. And some of us have to quit living like there's only the sorrow track. And others of us have to quit demanding that God engineer our lives in such a way that there's only a joy track. In this world, in this life, there are both joys and sorrows. Are you ready? Remember where the Lord is taking us? These true tracks, sorrows and joys, actually look as though they merge into one in the distance. We are traveling to a place of light where all the burdens and all the blessings intermingle in such a way that they display God's wisdom, strength, and goodness. It's because of who Christ is we can be ready. Oh, Lord, help me to be ready. And help my dear friends here at CBC be ready, God. And we know that the only way we can be ready is if we truly do trust you. When we cannot trace your hand, we can surely trust your heart. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name.